You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week three, covering Matthew chapters five through seven. Strayer, and I will tell you the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, because righteousness is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3 through 10. That was amazing. It's the cutest thing, right? That was from a sermon series back in 2021. I couldn't resist using it again. Well, good morning. My name is Christy Hess. It's a joy to be gathered with you around the Word of God today. Getting to teach the Sermon on the Mount is a bit of a full circle experience for me. Do you know what I mean by that? Maybe you've had one of these in your own life. Maybe it's returning to a place where you were significantly impacted or perhaps watching the next generation follow in your footsteps. The reason this morning feels full circle for me is because I personally was taught how to study scripture on the pages of Matthew 5 through 7 and I was sitting right there in your chairs at WBF. I had grew up well acquainted with the Word of God, but this was the first time that I was shown the inductive study method, and needless to say, I was hooked. It was like someone was putting tools in my hand and teaching me how to dig in the scriptures for myself. And admittedly, that's what we want for you as well. I tell you this to glorify God's work in my life, but also to encourage you that the Lord wants to meet you here, however you have entered this semester. He delights to reveal himself through his word, and we are changed when we encounter him. Who knows what he may bring from your time here, even years down the road. Our time in the word is never wasted. So to start out today, we're going to establish some context for the Sermon on the Mount. The book of Matthew contains five discourses, which just means a section of teaching, and they're interspersed throughout the narrative. And this is an important structural um, point of the book. We want to be watching for those discourses and see how Matthew uses them. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of these, and it's placed at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's arguably Jesus' most famous teaching. Even those who have very little biblical exposure, they know certain phrases or ideas from this sermon. I think one of the reasons for its popularity is because no one is untouched by the Sermon on the Mount. It's incredibly applicable. You can't make it through these three chapters without being convicted and called to something greater than yourself. 
And sisters, we are being called to something far greater than ourselves. Now you could open up to just about any section in this sermon and you'd have plenty to think about. But Jesus is a masterful teacher. He has intentionally woven all these different subject matters together to communicate the whole. And so I personally think it's really helpful that we have the big picture view before we start looking at each individual piece. That way we can connect any particular thought back up into his overarching intention. So what's Jesus trying to communicate in this discourse that we call the Sermon on the Mount? And I would propose to you that he is revealing what life in the kingdom of heaven is meant to be. In other words, how we were designed to live in the first place in wholehearted allegiance to our sovereign king, rightly aligned to him and rightly aligned to others. Matthew 5, one and two read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Jesus ascends a mountain following a biblical pattern that indicates divine revelation. Just as Moses climbed Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, now Jesus is climbing a mountain to reveal the heart of the law. He takes a seat indicating his authority as teacher. And he begins with these nine statements of blessedness that we call the Beatitudes. Now you may have noticed the literary style of these first 12 verses is very different from the rest of the sermon. But they're not just some poetic preamble, but rather they're really supplying us the framework to understand the rest of the sermon. So we would do well to pay attention here. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is revealing the value system of the kingdom of heaven. But he's doing even more than that. This style of teaching is reminiscent of Jewish wisdom literature. So if you think of like the Proverbs or some of the Psalms, these are not commands or even really promises per se, but rather statements of reality. This is how life actually works how things will turn out in the end. And so in these verses, Jesus is not mandating these qualities as much as he is inviting his disciples into a new way of being in the world. He is laying out the philosophy for the good life. And it looks far different from the Greek philosophies of his day, not to mention the Instagram philosophies of today that beckon to you. She who has ears to hear, let her hear. So the first question I would ask when I'm studying this passage is, what does he mean by blessed? Because when you look over these statements, this does not sound like the blessed that our society would ascribe. So look at this list with me. The first is poor in spirit. Meaning spiritually bankrupt, having nothing of merit to earn God's favor. Mournful, feeling grief from sin and its consequences, both in ourselves and the effects that we see in the world around us. Meekness is a quiet strength that waits on the Lord. That sounds nice, but really it means instead of taking matters into our own hands. 
hungering and thirsting for righteousness, longing for the justice of God to set all things right. Again, both inside of us and outside of us in the world. Merciful, compassionately relenting from justice towards someone who deserves it. Pure in heart means purity of the inner self. Peacemakers means saying or doing the hard thing for the long-term benefit of someone else, not just keeping the peace and not rocking the boat. Persecuted, reviled, falsely accused. I mean, where do I sign up, right? Just about all of these carry the idea of brokenness or lack or dying to self. How can this be blessed? There must be something more here than what meets the eye. Unfortunately, language changes with the times and our English falls short of Jesus' intended meaning. So when we look at blessed in the original Greek, it actually means happy, happy. And therein lies another problem because our understanding of the word happy is extremely fleeting and shallow. We've pretty much discounted that it has any lasting significance, right? But an old definition of happy from Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary says, being in the enjoyment of agreeable sensations from the possession of good, enjoying pleasure from the gratification of appetites or desires. And you're like, that still sounds a little sketchy. Okay, just wait, let's hear him out. The pleasurable sensations derived from gratifying your sensual appetites, that just means the senses of your body, render a person temporarily happy, but he only can be esteemed really and permanently happy who enjoys peace of mind in the favor of God. That changes things a little, doesn't it? Do you understand that God advocates for, not suppresses your pleasure? And here's the problem. Our appetites and our desires are so distorted from sin. But when we respond in faith and surrender to Christ as Lord, we are born again in the spirit. And this process of sanctification is that these appetites and desires are being continually recalibrated back to God's design. We begin to hate our sin to desire the Lord and that which pleases him. You are designed to experience the deep soul happiness of possessing the ultimate good, and that is Christ himself. So when we don't have just one word that serves as a proper translation, we have to use more words to get the point across. So here's my stab at it. The desirable position of the believer for having received God's gracious extension of himself and all his benefits. The desirable position of the believer for having received God's gracious extension of himself and all his benefits. Where do I sign up? Look at these rewards. A share in the kingdom, 
abiding comfort, an unfading inheritance, complete satisfaction, the mercy of God, face-to-face fellowship with God, and a place of belonging as his children. These benefits we taste in part now, but there's so much more to come. We will experience these realities fully in the age to come when Christ destroys everything that stands opposed to him. Then our blessedness will be complete. There's a reason the kingdom of God is called the upside down kingdom. These values don't make sense to a mind that's still darkened by sin. But for those of us born of the spirit, they are the way of wisdom. This is the way of true life. Will you trust his word? Will you trust that he is worth anything else that you may give up or lose for his sake? Don't be short-sighted, my friends. The reward for your allegiance to King Jesus is far greater than we could ask or imagine. Now, there's a reason I'm spending so much time in these first 12 verses. It's because I don't want you to miss the beauty of Jesus' invitation. He's not calling for a life of self-denial or submission out of duty, even though he would have every right to do so. Instead, this wise and humble way of being in the world is an invitation to true flourishing in him. This is for his glory, but it's also for your good. This is the best offer on the table. One of my favorite theologians says, we are motivated by beauty, not duty. You need to understand that these benefits of kingdom allegiance far outweigh these light and momentary troubles. Jesus himself is gonna lead by example. Hebrews 12, two says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. That delightful reward that was on the other side of his suffering is what enabled him to persevere through the injustice. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus as we follow in his footsteps. The life of kingdom flourishing is one of submission to and delight in our king. After introducing this upside down set of values, Jesus tells his disciples, if you actually live like this, you're gonna be the salt and light of the world. Did you come up with some ideas for why Jesus might have chosen those two analogies? Both are essential for life and both affect their surroundings. Salt provides flavor and not only its own, right? But it magnifies all the other ingredients that it touches. It cleanses. It preserves, it sustains life. And light illuminates, revealing reality, and it brings life. The life of kingdom flourishing will bring that life and flourishing to others. Every corner of this dark, contaminated world is meant to be illuminated and purified purified by God's people going out and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what's the point? Well, Matthew 5, 16 tells us, it's so that they might glorify your father in heaven for having come in contact with you. 
God is restoring his kingdom creation and he does so through his people. Now there's a huge Old Testament to New Testament hinge here in verses 17 to 20 that we can't miss. And maybe you remember from Exodus, God covenanted with his people and then commissioned them to represent his holy character to the surrounding nations. And they were to do this with faithful obedience to the law. That's the background that Jesus' hearers would have as they're listening. Yet Jesus' teachings on the law are gonna be strikingly different from those of the Pharisees and they're the resident experts of the law. It's as if Jesus is anticipating this accusation when he says in 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish or throw out the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of all of their scripture up to this point. Everything's been pointing to him. And specifically, he will be our representative in faithfully keeping the old covenant to make way for the new covenant in his blood. And do you remember where the prophets said that the law of the new covenant would be written? On our hearts, that's right. In other words, internalized. Hold on to that thought. You should have looked up a definition for righteousness in your homework. I'm guessing you probably found something about being morally upright or virtuous or just, something along those lines. This is my favorite definition. Adherence to divine law. But regardless of what you found there, you hear the insinuation. There is a moral standard and when your behavior aligns to that standard, you are acting righteously. Well, God's character is the standard of righteousness. His divine law and every good law that we've managed to write for that matter, stem from his righteous character. And this is the bar that God has set for us and it is extremely high. So when we read in 520, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, we should be left asking, how? And even though Jesus doesn't answer that question right here in Matthew 5, we know the answer to that because we live on this side of the cross. There is no amount of righteous behavior that grants you access into the kingdom of heaven. We need a righteousness from outside of ourselves to meet God's perfect standard. When we place our faith in Christ, he absorbs the punishment that our sins deserve and he gives us, covers us in his righteousness. This is how we are justified or made right before God. But then we begin the lifelong process of sanctification. This is a gradual growing righteousness that's worked out in our lives. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew, that our whole being, our inner desires and our outward behavior would be renewed and recalibrated to God and his will. Therefore, our righteous behavior flows out of a heart that's devoted to God. The law of righteousness, if you will, has been internalized. And this is the key to understanding what Jesus is about to say. 
So he goes on to give six examples of this very thing using the repetition of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And some of these are exact quotations from the law. Some of them are interpretations of the law that the Pharisees had been teaching. But regardless, Jesus is not changing the law or adding to the law. Rather, he's revealing the heart that has been there all along. God desires a greater righteousness than keeping only the letter of the law in one's external behavior. And look at how he concludes this section in 548. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And Jesus' use of that word, therefore, links this statement not only to 43 and 47, but to all of what he said prior. And again, the English language fails us here. And I'm guessing that in a room full of women, the word perfect falls kind of hard on your ear. But the Greek here does not mean flawless or beyond improvement. It would be better translated as wholeness wholeness. Let there be no division or duplicity in you because there is no division or duplicity in your heavenly father. And sanctification is the means to this end. What is inherently true of God is a process for us as we're conformed more into his image. In fact, the word itself insinuates a process of maturing needing to go through the necessary stages to reach the desired end. Now, Jesus could have quoted Leviticus 19.2 here, which says, be holy as I am holy. It's the same idea, but I think he intentionally chose a different word because the idea of holiness had become synonymous to external behavior and cleanliness to the Pharisees and the Jewish people. But he's after whole being righteousness. Remember? And so the life of kingdom flourishing is one of inner and outer continuity. This is what allegiance to King Jesus looks like. And just to make sure we understand, Jesus goes on to give three examples of the Pharisees' discontinuity in giving, praying, and fasting. And it's important to note that this is what he means when he uses the word hypocrite. So typically we use this word if somebody's actions don't line up with their words. But if you think about it, the Pharisees' actions did line up with their words. What he means is that the inner self does not match the outer self. Did you note all those occurrences of the word see and seen and secret? Okay, he's clearly contrasting these two areas of life. Every one of us has an external life that others see, as well as an internal life that no one sees except the Lord. So the questions we should ask ourselves in response are, does my unseen life match my visible life? Am I more concerned with what others think or with loving and obeying God? Am I willing to wait for the eternal reward and forego recognition now? Jesus cuts right to the heart. He is not mincing his words. But let me also offer you the hope of the gospel. None of us have yet reached this sort of wholeness. 
as long as we live, we'll feel the division and the battle between the spirit and the flesh. What matters is our response. Do we indulge the flesh, harboring sin in those places where nobody can see? Or are we quick to repent and to run to Christ for refuge? The life of kingdom flourishing is one of humble dependence and yet great confidence in our savior. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sisters, this is the wisest investment strategy out there that you are giving your whole self to something that lasts forever. The accolades of this world, the material possessions will fade away. But in Christ, you have an unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. Do you notice the two parts of the body mentioned in this section? Do you see them? It's heart and eyes. Whatever your eyes are fixed on, your heart will treasure. And whatever you treasure in your heart will guide your gaze. We will serve something, whatever or whomever that our heart treasures. But again, Jesus is inviting us into this surprising freedom of living a life of undivided allegiance to him. It says beauty, not duty, remember? We're gaining far more than anything we would give up. The life of kingdom flourishing finds its treasure in Christ. But turn the page here. Where does Jesus go from here? It's anxiety, right? Now, when I read this in the context of the sermon, it just feels like this gentle acknowledgement of the spiritual and physical paradox that is life. Jesus is like, I get it. It's going to be hard to remember. The word for anxious literally means to be fragmented into parts. And the word for peace means wholeness, all of the essentials joined together. Division versus wholeness. Do you see how even our perspectives and emotions are included in this whole person righteousness? Listen, I know we experience anxiety on a vast spectrum and every time it gets taught about, there's this long list of caveats. And I wanna acknowledge that, but I'm also telling you that Jesus offers us a remedy in these verses. What are the imperatives or the commands in verses 26 and 28? Do you see them? Look is the first one. And in verse 28, he says, consider, look and consider. And what is he directing our attention to? It's creation. The way that God cares for the birds and the wildflowers communicates the kind of God that he is, a good and trustworthy father. So what is your gaze fixed upon? What is your heart and mind fixed upon? And is it leaving you fractured into pieces? 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The life of kingdom flourishing rests in the surety of God's character. Jesus now moves into the final segment of the sermon with these strong statements in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And since everyone's going around saying, don't judge me these days, we have to do some work with this language here too. So in our culture, judgment equals condemnation. Do you understand that? There is very little room for it to mean rightful discernment, which is actually what we are called to as disciples of Christ. And may I point out to you in verse five of Matthew seven, you are indeed still removing a speck from your brother's eye. You're just supposed to get the log out of your own first. So what Jesus is really saying here is don't judge unfairly. This falls right in line with his call to greater righteousness. His righteousness being the universal standard for all of us. That we don't have a double standard. And as you consider what this looks like in real life, ask yourself, have I taken this issue to the Lord first? And whose interest do I have in view if I'm gonna confront someone? Is it mine or is it the others? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And understanding our own sin births a mercy and a compassion towards others in theirs. This is to be rightful discernment, not prideful or vindictive, but rightful discernment. Jesus immediately follows with these commands to ask, seek, and knock. And I can't help but think how much I need the spirit to rightfully discern. But this passage also parallels Jesus' words on anxiety. He's saying, come, present your needs to the Father. Trust him to provide. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. The assurance is again squarely rooted in who God is. And the golden rule of Matthew 7, 12 serves as a bookend mirroring his statement about the law and the prophets in chapter five. It so beautifully summarizes all of these descriptions of what it looks like to live out these kingdom values with one another. Being properly aligned to God allows us to be properly aligned to others. We extend preferential treatment, meaning loving others better than they deserve because God in Christ extended that preferential treatment to us. Jesus concludes the sermon with a series of analogies beginning with the two gates and paths. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Sobering, isn't it? Remember how Linz explained there are two responses to Jesus and his message. It's either allegiance or opposition. These are the two paths. There is not a third or a fourth option. 
We'll see people choose one of these two paths over and over again in Matthew. But the added layer that this sermon brings is that true allegiance stems from inner righteousness. In other words, there are a lot of people whose behavior does not look like opposition, but their hearts are far from him. And Jesus is clear that they are walking the broad path to destruction. But rather like Christian and Pilgrim's progress, enter by the wicked gate. There is one access point to the king's way. And though it is plagued with enemies and with trials, the king will see his pilgrims through to the celestial city. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. There will be many who jump over the wall, trying to entice the king's pilgrims with empty promises for the good life. But do not be deceived, sisters. Look for their fruit, not just a verbal confession, not even mighty works or prophecies, but a humble and devoted heart that's devoted to the king. And Jesus concludes with this wisdom parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. There are two ways of being in this world and they are determined by one's response to the person and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Both of these houses may look just fine by outward appearances, but their stability or lack thereof lies underground in the unseen place. Each builder aligned himself to a philosophy that promised him refuge or security, a flourishing life, but only one of them actually has it. The storms of life may very well reveal the faulty foundation, but even if not, you can be sure that it will crumble when Christ returns to destroy every opinion and argument that, that elevates itself against the knowledge of God. This Jesus is not just a wise teacher. He is the son of God. He is the long awaited Christ. And he invites his hearers into a life of kingdom flourishing by being re reunited with God through his blood and made new in the spirit. She who has ears to hear, let her hear. Let's pray. Father, I join with the psalmist declaring, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. For those of us in this room who call Jesus our savior and Lord, would you increase our affection for and allegiance to you? May we lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Christ. 
And Spirit, if there are any here that have not yet surrendered to Jesus as King, I pray that you would illuminate darkened minds and hearts to see you rightly. May the philosophies of this world prove empty. And may they turn to you, the only true source of abundant life. Would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? The words are on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven, forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.